got a Bible, I'd invite you to grab it and go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. Got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to have to put on our helmets today and have some fun. We're going to be in chapter 12, verse 18. If you're new to MCC, what we do here is, uh, maybe as opposed to, to going through some topical stuff, going series to series, uh, what we've just set out to do is to just plow through the Bible. Uh, what we have been doing for the last year is we've been plowing through the book of Hebrews. We are actually coming up to the crescendo of the book of Hebrews here in chapter 12. Today is going to be another one of those moments where, where this book that's really written as a sermon kind of hits ahead, hits a culminating thing. I'm going to do my best, even if today is your first time, you've never even heard of the book of Hebrews, today you'll hopefully still be able to get something out of this, come in and lean back into what God is doing in and through this. So Hebrews 12, let's start at verse 18. A little context here. What this pastor has been doing is trying to encourage, encourage, encourage a church who is going through hard times, a people who are trying to figure out how do I take this real faith that I have and allow it to help me through the real life struggles and complications that are coming my way. And he tells them a lot of things. And today we're going to lean specifically into verses 18 through 29. This is the word of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But... You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's a lot right there, huh? <laughs> How about that? The passages before were super easy to understand. It was like, hey, don't be sexual immoral. Don't follow your appetites like this guy Esau who sold his whole birthright for a bowl of beans. Live at peace with people. Don't let bitterness get into your heart. And we checked off that list and we're like, yeah, that all makes sense. That all checks out. And then he starts out with tempests and darkness and gloom and all this stuff. And we're like, what's going on here? Well, I want to talk to you about kind of the two primary things that are mentioned in this passage. First is this thing, the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think, what is the Bible really all about? What is this? What is this? Like from cover to cover, what is the, the main thing? Is this a book about love? I've heard people say, and I don't necessarily agree with this. Um, 
66 love letters written to you from God. <laughs> and that sounds nice. Um, but there's some things in here that, that I wouldn't write to a love letter to my wife. Um, but that's besides the point. From cover to cover, what this book that we have that is the living word of God, the theme is the kingdom of God. One theme throughout the entire Bible is the glory of God through the advancement of his kingdom. Now you're like, what is the kingdom? The kingdom of God is not this thing up there. The kingdom of God is anywhere where what he wants done is done. Okay, so to track with me on this, a lot of times when we think kingdom of God, we think that's just synonymous with heaven or the place where God is. But maybe you remember the Lord's prayer and Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray. And he said uh, these words in that prayer, your kingdom come on where? Earth as it is in heaven. So he, he was making this separation that there is an earth and there is a heaven, but both of them, he was calling to be places where the kingdom reigned. That as it rains in heaven, it would rain, R-E-I-G-N, would rain down here on earth. And that's why he prays that this kingdom would be a place that is actually among us, that down here in your life, in my life, in classrooms, in city hall, these would actually be places where what God wants done is actually done. Now, he talks about kingdom, and then he uses this other word to describe it, and we saw that in there. He was talking about an un shakable kingdom. And he says that this kingdom, that if we're in Christ, the kingdom that we are actually getting invited in, that we get to be a part of is an unshakable kingdom. And, and that's great to hear and understand. But when we look around in our own lives, it seems like things are kind of shaken down here, right? Over the course of the last five years, we've gone through a lot of shaking as a country, as a nation, as a, as a world in general. And that's on the national level from the down in your own personal life and your chair, you've probably gone through some shaking in your life. And what I want to tell you today, and I want to hopefully allow you to take a deep breath and realize what's going on. God, throughout history, has perpetually used shaking things up to get his people's attention. A lot of times we see the world being shaken, we see economies being shaken, we see health being shaken, we see finances being shaken, relationships being shaken, values and morals being shaken, and we get really up in arms about those things. But what you need to understand is throughout history, God has used his shaking up to also be his sign to his church and to his people that this is when he is speaking up, that he has something to say as things get more and more shaken up. So we could want to just kind of go back and somehow I just wish things would get back to the good old days. And then again, depending on how old you are, your definition of the good old days changes. I'm a 90s kid. The good old days were Ninja Turtles and no internet. Like that's what I love. If you were raised in the 50s, your good old days is, I don't know, I was in the 50s, whatever you think it is. Like we all have our own definition of what the good old days are. But here's the truth. What God tells us is that it's not about getting back to the good old days. It's not about making things great again. It's about my kingdom coming, my kingdom reigning here, and I am doing something new. And what I need you to do, he's talking to his people, he's talking to his church, over and over again, when he shakes things up, it's because he's calling his church to wake up, to realize that maybe we have began to fall asleep. We have been lulled to sleep by the hypnosis of this world and we have gone 
cold. We are all but like he wrote to the, to the church in Laodicea. We have become lukewarm and our fires are getting ready to burn out. And so sometimes like a sleeping child while the house is on fire, the parent is not going to be, you know, well, I don't want to flip the light switch on. You know, I don't want the, the, the eyes. I would just, you know, there's a way that my wife wakes up our boys and there's a way I wake up my boys. <laughs> and you can imagine which one of those is more gentle. Um, it's not mine. <laughs> when the house is on fire, the time is not to have the motherly, hi, sweet little angel, are you ready to, you know, <laughs> get out of bed. Like, and that's some of what God is doing, I believe. And, 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 and our call is, what are we going to interpret the shaking as? Because, and again, uh, us as Christians, we're good at this. Uh, we're good at blaming everything on the devil. You go, oh, look, that, that war, that's the devil. Oh, that economy, that's the devil. Oh, that pandemic, that's the devil. Oh, that, you fill in your own blank. That Disney, that's the devil. You know, we got, we got all our things we want to point out. Go, that's the devil, that's the devil, that's the devil. And we find the devil under everything. He's in the cereal box. He's everywhere you can look. He, the devil's in there, all right? And, he, and, and, and there's a lot of things. Don't get me wrong. Like this world is, is, is ruled by demonic forces and principalities. And, and that's very clear in scripture. But here's what I, I don't want us to do as a church to think that every time shaking occurs, that it is all Satan. No, God does that too. More often than not, it is, first of all, whether it's from Satan or it is God's intentional shaking and waking, all of those are under the sovereign rule and care and governance of a God who is fully in control. And if anything happens, whether it's something that's perpetuated by evil and Satan and his forces, it is all under the sovereign rule and reign. And if God hadn't said, I will allow it, it would not be allowed. And so what we are coming to here is this juxtaposition in this passage between what to interpret the shaking as and where we can enter into a kingdom that is unshakable so that as life begins to maybe even fall apart around us, we can take courage and take heart that if we are in Christ, we are a part of something that cannot be shaken. We are part of something that the world could not take away, that no matter what the economy does, no matter what election happens, no matter what new virus gets created or perpetuates through our lives, that no matter what happens here in the kingdom of earth, we are actually a part of a different kingdom, one that cannot be shaken and one that will reign forever. And so this pastor is trying to give his church a cosmic view of what they're now a part of. Now, you need to understand why he's doing that. This pastor is the one who's a pastor to the Hebrew church, is writing his church. Most scholars and theologians think that the book of Hebrews is just one sermon. And so where we've come to in chapter 12, most scholars, Bible scholars would say, chapter 12 is like the, the closing. It's the landing of the plane. It's him hitting that big crescendo so that everybody goes, okay, here's the deal. And most people even, or some people, one of the theories is that chapter 13 was actually added after the fact to the book of Hebrews. And you'll see why that it kind of just feels like it kind of got tagged on to the end. But the point that I'm trying to make is this pastor knows that for this local church, where they existed in about AD 70, was when this book was written or the sermon was written to this church. What was getting ready to befall them was immense persecution for anybody said, I'm with Jesus. And so what he knows is the world of his friends and his family and his brothers and sister in Christ, he knows their world is about to get shaken up in a way that is unimaginable. And so what he's trying to point them to is their birthright, their blessing, and their part of an unshakable kingdom. So that even when things around them are going to heck in a handbasket, 
they can know that our Father is in control, that we are part of something greater, and even though this heaven or this earthly kingdom is falling apart, we are part of something far greater. All right, let's lean in here. Oh, I went way too far, sorry. He says this in verse 18. Let's walk through it together. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens beg, or made the hearers, sorry, beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So we hear this and we're like, what are we talking about? All right, and the, and the reason we do that is because we're not Jews. Every Jewish person who read this knew exactly what mountain he was talking about. He was talking about Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, if you go back to the book of Exodus, Mount Sinai is a mountain where God shows up and speaks to his prophet Moses, his leader Moses. He takes Moses up the mountain and he gives Moses the stone tablets with the 10 commandments and all the rest of the laws are given to Moses on this mountain. When all of this is happening and heaven kind of comes to earth here on this mountain and God's presence kind of comes and dwells in this place, this is how it's described. Blazing fire and darkness. I don't even know how those two things happen at once, but it does. Gloom and a tempest. That's like a giant storm. And the sound of a trumpet that just keeps getting louder and louder. And a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So he's, he's painting a horrifying scene here as God comes to people. And, and it culminates with the people going, we don't like this. <laughs> like, God, um, we love you. Can you leave? Like, you're too close. This is too much. And the reason they're saying that is not because God is showing off. The reason they're saying that is because they're unholy and he is holy. And his holiness causes them to realize how unholy they are. Now, there's two things. What this pastor is getting ready to do is juxtapose these two mountains. He's gonna say, there is Mount Sinai. That's the one he's talking about here. This is the mountain where the law came down. This is the mountain where the old covenant was essentially established. And then there's this new mountain. There's this mountain that is Mount Zion. And this is what he's getting ready to tell his people. He's saying, you have not come to this mountain that is Mount Sinai, this mountain that is the old covenant. You have actually come, you have now come to the mountain that is the holy city of God, the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And what he's trying to lay in front of them is a choice between two mountains. And that's what he means by this word, you have not come. When we hear that, we just think, okay, that's like this geographical thing, like I'm coming to this side of the stage now, or if I wanna to go to this side, I'm gonna come back to this side. When he's saying you have not come, it's a deeper meaning in the word that's more so implying your way of approaching God is no longer approaching God on the basis of your good deeds. It's no longer on the basis of what you can do or should do. Because remember, the old covenant was based around, essentially to, to boil it down, was do good, Follow these commands. Do good and get good. Or do bad and get bad. That was, that was the old covenant in a nutshell. Because God said, you're my people. Here's my governance for you. If you do these things, you're gonna be blessed. And you're gonna be a blessing to other people. But if you don't, really bad things are gonna happen. Now, this is where we can go, okay, we're talking about all these Jewish and Hebrew stuff and these mountains. How in the world does this apply to anything that's going on in my life right now, right now in 2024? Most people still approach God like he is this mountain. If I do good, I get good. And if I don't do good, I don't do, I don't get any good. That's why, you know, some of you, you've had sniffles for three weeks in a row. And, you're in, in, and because you've had the sniffles for so long and you've gone through so many boxes of Kleenex, you are at the point now where you're going, God, what did I do wrong? 
or something good happens in your life. You get some really good news or you get a promotion and you go, yeah, I read my Bible five days in a row. Boom. I did it. That's God. God's face is shining upon me. No, it's, it's, it's not those things. And so he says, you can continue to choose to approach God on the basis of what you've done and you're gonna continue to run into what they ran into. When it really comes down to it and God really shows up, you won't be like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Here's the list of all the great things that I've done. No, when it really comes down to it and God really shows up the way he showed up to them and really lays out the law, what they do when they see the fullness of the law is they see how far they've fallen short of it. And that's why they're terrified. The verse explains it a little bit more and it says that they could not endure the order that was given. So God gives them this command about the mountain. He basically says, nobody even can come and touch this mountain. And even if an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. It's like kill everything that touches the mountain. It's so holy. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So they're most holy, most living the right way guy. Their leader, their captain of their team is going, I'm terrified. I, I, we, I, I should not be here. And this is what happens when God really shows up. People freak out. They realize I am in the presence of somebody who I should not be in the presence of. This is Isaiah going, I am an impure man. This is the apostle Peter when Jesus is in the boat with him and he catches all the fish. He falls down at his feet and he says, away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When sinful human beings fully encounter the presence of a holy and righteous God, they cannot do anything but one, recognize how sinful and unholy they are. And then they don't just go, I'm really unholy and I'm really sinful. They go, there needs to be distance between us because you're too much and I'm not enough. So this is this mountain. He says, you guys, he's talking to his church and he says, please refrain forevermore for coming to God on the basis of your good deeds and your works. And then he points him to a better mountain an unshakable mountain. That's where he goes from here. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Again, we'll explain that a little bit. You've come to Mount Zion. And now he's saying this, when he says you've come, he's not talking necessarily just about geographically. He's saying what's happening on a cosmic level and a boots on the ground level is we now, because of Jesus and our faith in him, we now have a new approach to God. And we come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I mean, that is a hallelujah verse, if there ever was one. That's amazing. He's saying, here is how we come to God. And this is this new mountain. And this is this new city. So let's take a second and kind of unpack what in the world is going on here. First of all, you need to understand that when he says you've come to Mount Zion, Mount Zion and Jerusalem in the way they would communicate and talk was oftentimes synonymous. When you would say, we're going to Zion, everybody knew you were heading to Jerusalem. When you were going to, they would say, well, that's a part of the, you're going, the, the Mount Zion was a place where Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac. It was a place where the initial temple was built. <laughs> Zion is this holy mountain of God. And it is outside of this area where, where Jesus went to uh, one of the hills along in this mountain range and gave his life on a cross. All here in this area that is Jerusalem, separate from Sinai. And so what he's saying here is, this is what we have come to. 
a new city, a different city. And when he's explaining this, he's saying this is the city of the living God, which is huge for them to understand and to know that this is a city where God lives and they can live as well. He goes on from there and says, this is the heavenly Jerusalem. If you've got a Bible, do me a favor and turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. It's way back there in the back. It's almost at the very end. If you hit maps, you're almost there. I want to explain some things to you. Most of you may have grown up um, singing the song, you know, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus. That's a good hymn. All right. And, and yeah, y'all are beautiful. Yeah, ready to go. The misconception sometimes is, though, that we're all just going to escape this earth and go there. But what the Bible actually promises is these words here in Revelation 21. Let's, let's read along here. Then I saw, this is what he's talking about here in this passage of Hebrews. This is, this is another, the best way to interpret scripture is not a pastor, not a theologian, dang sure not the internet. The best way to interpret scripture is other scripture. And this is what is happening here. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Not just the first earth, even the first heaven passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. That's what I was just explaining right here to these people. New Jerusalem coming down. Not go, not, we're not going up. It's coming down. Out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with Man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. There's some even better news. This is what happens when God is with his people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold I am making all things new this is what's going to happen this is what this passage was prophesying this is this city that is to come and, and hear me on this. This is what you got to understand too. This is not just for the Jews. This is not just for Hebrews. This is for all of us who would now be in Christ. We are invited into the city. This is the, the main uh, point of all of Ephesians chapter three and four. It says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave and free, male or female. He says, we are now all one in Christ. And as we are one in Christ, we are invited into Christ's city. We're invited into the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem, it means peace. We're invited into a new city that symbolizes the peace that has been made from a hostile divinity to a hostile humanity. And because divinity became humanity and died for their sins, now there is peace between humanity and divinity. And we get, our enter, we get to enter into this new city of peace. This new Jerusalem is our future. 
Now, again, I, I know I'm on like this big grand scale and some of you guys have leaky faucets at your house and there's this weird sound coming from the attic and you don't know what it means. And you got kids that are super disobedient and they love the iPad more than they love you. And you can tell, and you're like, how does this affect my real life? Okay, here's how. All of these things that you're going through and that you're being affected by right now, friend, they will all fade away. You think that your life in the 70 years that if you're lucky, you get to spend down here is almost all that matters. But the Bible tells us very clearly that you are not a body that happens to have an eternal soul that is gonna spend an eternity somewhere. The Bible tells us very clear, you are, the thing that is the most real about you is the eternal soul that you have. And right now, you just kind of have a body. And in about 70 years is about as long as you got, 70, maybe 80 with some good medicine and some exercise. That's about as long as you got in this thing before it wastes away. But that soul is gonna spend eternity somewhere. And he says, the place where your soul should come is approaching this new city, the holy Zion, the city of the living God, this heavenly Jerusalem. And he begins to talk about these things. This is what we get to be a part of. He's explaining this unshakable kingdom and this unshakable mountain that we now come to. And he says this crazy line. He says, here's what we're coming to. We're coming to the new city, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what we just read about. And he says, you're coming to innumerable angels in festal gathering, which doesn't that sound like something that would be in a Christmas song? You're coming to innumerable angels in a festal <laughs> gathering. That word festal is the only time that that is used in the entire Greek part of the New Testament. The New Testament was translated into Greek. That festal word is the only time that's there. And it, and it means this raucous party. This, this festival, this, this, a party that you hear from across the street and you're like, oh, they're up to no good, all right? So hear me, if you're anti-party, you're gonna have a hard time in heaven, okay? Um, Jesus, he talked a lot about the kingdom and he talked about these banquets and, and over and over again, when you look at what Jesus was really about, he made it very clear that at the end, there was going to be a celebration and that there would be unshakable joy in this kingdom of God. And these angels are offered to us in this passage at least as the ones who are ushering us into that. And we get different passages from the Old Testament that kind of give us an idea that that's kind of the angel's job, not necessarily to stand as a guard between us and divinity, but they kind of usher us in. It's what they've been around for all eternity, but here in this moment as the city with us and this you know, different thing that we're, we don't even really have an understanding of, of angels. We're all in this thing together with, with God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit with all of these angelic beings. And then us, it's like, it's like, I feel underdressed. Uh, we're all together in this festal party. That is the kingdom of God, which is no coincidence that, that many people's favorite parable that Jesus told. And again, when Jesus tells parables, he tells parables to show people. And this is more often than not at the beginning of the parable, he says, the kingdom of God is like, and then he proceeds to tell a story. And one of his best parables, in my opinion, is the parable of the prodigal son, which ends with what? A party. And really, if you want to go to the real, real end of the story, it ends with a party for an unrighteous sinner who's repented and an obstinate religious person on the outskirts going, I don't like to party. How dare that brother of mine? He's so unrighteous. I did all dad. I'd listen to dad. I did all the good things for dad. What you see in those two brothers is you see one brother coming to Sinai 
and you see another brother coming to Zion. And the question is, which brother will you be? Will you be the brother who goes to Zion and says, Father, I have lived in your house. I have kept your rules. And you never once gave me a young goat. Hmm. And then this son of yours goes and wastes all of your inheritance. And you throw him a party. You give him a ring and a robe and fattened calf. You got a DJ. You want me to get on the dance floor with him? You're crazy. Which brother are you going to be? Which mountain are you going to go to? So he says, you, you're coming to this festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn. This is awesome because this speaks to our identity. The assembly of the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn, but we are a part of this firstborn congregation, this firstborn citizenship enrolled into heaven. And this is amazing because now this actually speaks to who we are. When somebody asks you that question, what do you begin to think of? Who are you? For most of us, when it comes to our identity, our identity in regards to shaking and unshakable, our identities are pretty shaking. You have one bad day as a dad and you're like, oh man, I'm a terrible dad. Your identity as a good father just completely got blown away. As an employee, all your boss has to do is kind of give one little comment that's somewhat passive aggressive. And you're like, I'm getting fired tomorrow, goodness gracious. We have our identities and they are fragile. Because most of our identities are based off of what people have said are true about us are not said are true about us. And the things we hope are true, that's the things we wanna take into our identity and the things we hope are not true are things that we're nervous about and we guard it against. But what he's saying here is your identity, if you are in Christ, your identity is now something that is unshakable. And young person in the room, if you don't hear anything that I'm saying, please hear this. The world is gonna try to define you a million different ways, a million different days. Put your identity in Christ. So much of the world will say, spend your 18 to 29 figuring out who you are. You can save yourself a world of hurt if you go, no thanks. I know who I am in Christ. And I'll spend the rest of my 20s and the rest of my 30s and my 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s continuing to figure out what it looks like to have all of Christ live through all of me. You'll save yourself some trouble. Take it from a a 36-year-old who did not heed that advice when somebody gave it to me. So he says, this is your identity. And if you come to this city, you get an unshakable identity. And he says, and this is, he's just describing this city. And God's there, which is awesome. God's there, but God's the judge of all. Which, if you just take that line, and to God, the judge of all, you pee your pants for a little bit. <laughs> because you're like, that's not a good thing. Because if he's gonna judge me, I'm not, I can't get into this city which is I love where he goes because it's, it's, if I was reading this as the, as the pastor to the Hebrew church and I'm in the living room with everybody and I would go, and to God, the judge of all, pause and sit around and wait for people to go, yeah, that's what that whole Sinai thing was about and people wanted to die because God was so holy and if, if God is gonna judge me, I have no chance but I love where the pastor goes next and you cannot miss it. If you miss this, you miss the whole mountain. He says, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And then you go, whoa, 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 I thought we couldn't do that. I thought the law showed us how far we were for perfection. And you're right, it did. And how do I, I can't get righteous at Sinai. There's no righteousness at Sinai. You can't keep the law. And this is where, praise God, verse 24 comes into play. 
And this is also who's a part of the city. <laughs> and we save the best for last as far as the city goes in this passage. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Sinai represented the old. Mount Zion represents the new because it is there in the vicinity of Zion that there is also a Calvary where the blood was shed to say that no longer will you approach a mountain based off of what you do for me, but you will approach a mountain based off of what God has done for you, the finished work, not the work you could ever finish. And he says, you come to Jesus, the mediator, keyword there. Jesus is the middleman between us and God. You could have never got to him. That's why it says he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless they go through him. So you can try to live a good, holy, perfect life. You can try to do things good. You can try to let your good outweigh your bad, but you will never come to the Father unless you go through the Son, Jesus. He is the mediator of this new covenant. And this new covenant is one that is based on blood. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is key. We gotta really lean in and spend some time here. Because this is what this whole city is built upon. The foundation of the new city is the blood of Christ. Now in churches, especially churches nowadays, nobody wants to talk about the blood anymore. We're just like, that's gross. All right, what if there's a first time guest and we talk about blood and stuff? Well, I believe that's something I'm willing to risk today and every day to talk about the blood of Christ because it is what saved a wretch like me. So let's figure out what we can land on from this passage. So Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And... This is also a part of this new city and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, okay? So before we understand what this better word is, let's first and foremost figure out what this blood of this guy Abel said, okay? Can we do that together? So in the Old Testament, you go back to the very beginning, there's Adam and Eve and they had two kids. Can you remember their names? Cain and Abel, way to go, you Bible scholars, you. It's Cain and Abel, all right? Cain and Abel show up, God tells them to bring him an offering, they bring an offering, long story short, Cain's is not as good, Abel's is good, gooder. Abel's offering was an offering that was a sacrificed animal. Abel's offering contained blood. There's some points to be made here, I don't have time to expound upon all that. Cain's offering was, was harvest, was fruit of the ground, grain, stuff like that. God basically says to the boys there, Abel, I look more favorably upon your offering to me. And what he doesn't do is take Cain behind the woodshed and go, you, you think I like vegetables? I don't like vegetables. Like that's not what God does. God just says to Abel, I like that more. That really infuriates a comparison driven Cain. And he can't take that God would like what his brother has to offer more than what he offered. And so Cain kills his brother. You know how the story goes. And then God shows up. He says, Cain, where's your bro? And Cain's like, oh, he's just obstinate, prideful. Mm-hmm. I'm not my brother's keeper. That's your job. He's your job. You know what to do. He's yours. And then God says, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. Okay, so if the blood of Abel is crying out from the God, and God says this in the book of Genesis, if, if Abel's blood is crying out in order to understand what Hebrews is saying, we gotta figure out what that blood that's crying out to God is saying because he's saying Jesus' blood is saying even a better word than what Abel said. So even though the Bible is not explicitly clear on what this blood is saying, we can deduce from what is happening a good 
understanding of, of what is being said in this blood. And if I had to summarize it and make it something that we can all kind of lean into, it's this. The blood of Abel is saying, I am innocent and I'm being killed by the guilty. I am innocent. I, di- I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't hurt my brother or harm my brother. There's nothing that I did wrong or against my brother. I did something holy unto God. I offered a blood sacrifice unto God and then I became a blood sacrifice at the hands of my guilty brother. Abel's blood says, I am innocent and I'm dying by the guilty. Okay, so that's what Abel's blood says. So now the question is, what is Jesus' blood saying? Because the pastor of the church in Hebrews is saying, this blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So if I had to say what I believe he's after here is where Abel's blood says, I am innocent being killed by the guilty. Jesus' blood says, I am innocent being killed, not by but by and for, for the guilty. See, Abel died because of his brother. He did not die for his brother. His blood did not cover and forgive his brother. And that's why Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, because Jesus' blood says to us, I am the innocent dying at the hand of and simultaneously for the guilty. And every person in this room, that blood was shed for you because you were one of the guilty. That's me. That's you. That's us. And I have three words I don't have time to continue to unpack, but I, I spend the rest of your Christian walk understanding these three words and how they work together. Sacrificial blood atonement. Sacrificial blood atonement. Take your life and figure out this. This is where the power to conquer. This is where the power to overcome. This is where the power to be the follower of Christ, the husband, wife, son, daughter, coach, manager, employee. This is where our power comes from the blood, the sacrificial blood atonement of Christ. It's where the power lies. So he goes on from here. He's talking about this blood still. He says, this blood speaks a better word. So this blood is not just an inanimate object on a cross. When we look at the things with Jesus dying on the cross, passion of the Christ, it's not just blood in a vial or a tube somewhere. He's saying that this blood actually has a message connected to it. And when he says here, don't refuse him who is speaking, the implication is There are many of you who are hearing what I'm saying who will miss what the blood is speaking to you. When he says, don't refuse him who is speaking, he's not talking about himself. The first few times when I was younger and I read through the book of Hebrews, I thought this was the pastor kind of going, hey, listen up, I'm talking to you. When he says, don't refuse who is speaking, I thought that was the pastor going, hey, y'all better listen to what I'm saying. But he's not talking about what he's saying. He's talking about what the blood of Jesus is saying. There is a message in this blood. And what's alarming about this is there is a message within the blood that can be refused, ignored, neglected. So let's just make sure we know what this blood is saying. If you would, in your mind's eye, I'd love for you to imagine, and I know this isn't fun, but I would love for you to imagine the crucifixion of your Savior, Jesus Christ. See it. See, see, him, see him here on a stage. See this in front of you today. Uh, ten foot tall beam with a man whiffed and beaten and mutilated beyond recognition there in front of you. 
see blood so covering his body that you can't even tell what nationality he is. See, but don't just see. See and hear at the same time. Do you see what this blood that's shed is saying? When you look from the top to the bottom, is it something that just invades your eyes or is it something that invades your ears and worms its way into your very own soul as you see a head that is covered in blood? Do you see the blood that is dripping from his head as this crown of thorn is spoken on? Can you hear that blood speaking? I am forgiving every impure thought that you have ever thought. As you see the blood filling up his eyes, do you hear that blood speaking? I forgive everything that you have looked at that you should have never, ever seen. As you see the blood coming out of his ears as he is, has, is in so much trauma, do you hear the blood speaking? I forgive all of the words that you've longed to hear more than my word. As you find your way tracking down with your eyes to see his hands from the east to the west with nails pierced through the middle parts of his wrists to be able to hold him up, can you not just see the blood coming from that nail wound, but can you hear the blood speaking through his hands saying, I forgive everything that you've ever touched and long to touch more than you long to fill my embrace as your older brother, as your loving savior, as your kind and caring king. Do you see and do you hear my forgiveness for what you've longed to hold in your hand, refusing to let go? Do you see my wide open hands beckoning you to come? And as you make your way a little further down, do you see his side? As a soldier pierces it and blood and water flows, do you hear the blood and water flow through his side saying to you all the things that you've longed to be closer, to have by your side more than me, I forgive you. And do you see his feet laid one over the other with a nail driven through them, saying all the places that you've gone, can you hear them say, can you hear the blood dripping through his feet down the wooden cross say to you every place that you have longed to go and that you have gone, that you knew were places that you never should have been, my blood screams out your feet are forgiven for where they've gone and how they've walked away from me. And would you be willing to get a 360 view of the cross and go to the backside of it and to see a back that before it was even put on the cross went through the flagellum, had a whip called the cat of nine tails, which was a handle with nine strips of leather with bone and glass shards attached to it where Jesus was flogged at the stake before he ever even went to the cross. And would you not just see the blood on his back where it's ripped open like hamburger meat hanging off of his spine. Would you not just see that blood, but would you be someone who actually hears what that blood is saying? Son, daughter, every time that you have turned your back on me, my blood from my back says that I will never ever turn my back on you. Sin has backed me into this corner that is the cross, but I will gladly and willingly be crushed so that you can escape. 
Do you hear what the blood from the cross is saying? I know we've seen it. We've watched the movies. We've hung them around our necks. I know you see the cross, but do you hear what the blood of your Savior on that cross is speaking to you? I pray that it is opening deaf ears in this moment. And he says, this cross speaks, this blood speaks. And then he tells the people, do not refuse him who is speaking. Do not reject and turn. Do not see this blood and go, oh, that, I, that is so much, that's too much for me. I, I don't dare come to you. But see what Hebrews has already told us, that it was for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And part of that joy was saving a wretch like me and saving a wretch like you. So do not plug your fingers in your ears and refuse to hear the one who said, it was for my joy that I did this for you, son. It was for my joy that I did this for you, daughter. And would you come? and enter into the new mountain. He says, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, how much more will they not escape if they reject him who warns from heaven? He's talking about Jesus speaking this message. He's saying, nobody could escape Mount, Zion, or Mount Sinai if they rejected the message. He's saying, how much more? He's making a lesser than to greater than argument. Nobody's gonna be able to escape if they reject what Jesus has done on Mount Calvary in the vicinity of Mount Zion. The passage goes on from there. It gets pointing back, but helping us understand what happened there in that moment. It says that at this time, his voice shook the earth. His here is Jesus's. At that time, Jesus's voice shook the earth. Just for a second, take your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 27. Jump down to verse 45. Matthew 27, 45. This is what he's saying happened. He's connecting these dots. We, unlike the people in the Hebrew church, we don't have the luxury of both having the letter of Hebrews and the book of Matthew in our hands at the same time. Or they didn't have that luxury. They couldn't go connect these dots. But praise God, you have his word and you can connect these dots. When he says, at that time his voice shook the earth, he's talking about Matthew 27, 45. Listen to what he says. From now, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land. See if this doesn't sound like a mountain I've already talked about. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. Some of them at once ran to took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. In verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, here's what happens. When this cry, his voice right there, and then he screams out, verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were also opened and many of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection and they went to the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion who was there with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the son of God. 
So what's happening here as Jesus is crucified? Again, go back to that cross that I just took you to and hear what the blood is saying, but also understand what happened in the actual moment when he breathed his last. There was another earthquake. It grew dark. There was a storm. Rock split wide open. What's God trying to show you in this? And what's the Hebrew pastor trying to speak to us? And what are we trying to grasp today? He's trying to show us that Jesus went to Sinai for us. That at the very same moment that he's dying on the hill of Calvary, it is same at the same moment fulfilling what was happening on the mountain of Sinai. The sky grows dark, the earth quakes and trembles, clouds fall over these things. The temple that veiled the presence of God is now ripped in two from top to bottom. He's saying Jesus conquered Sinai. Because here's the deal. It's not just let's choose between these two mountains. It's both of these mountains had to find their completeness. God doesn't just control, alt, delete Mount Sinai. There were laws and rules and governance that even if you were not a Jew, you were under and that you sinned against. It's not just, well, this mountain didn't work out. Let me just make another one. And we'll forget about that one and pretend like that one didn't exist. No, our God is loving and he is holy, but he is also a just God. Which means those sins for the Jews and for yous had to be paid for. And this is where we see at the cross Jesus dealing with Sinai. And that's why the same things that happened there happened on Calvary. And here's why it happened. So that it didn't have to happen to you. So that you could go, I could never make it through Sinai. I can never be good enough to get to God, but that God went to Sinai for me so that I could come to Zion, so I could come to Jerusalem, so I could come to the city of peace, because peace has been made between me and a holy, righteous God. And he says, the voice shook the earth, but says, now he has promised, yet once more, I'll shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. He's quoting from Haggai chapter two right there. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that can be shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, this is where we just, this is where praise rises up. But also, a warning rises up. Somewhere in your life, you're banking way too much in your life on things that can be taken away and shaken. You can have the most beautiful house in the neighborhood. You can have all the things. You, can be, you drove here today in a truck that I would, I would steal if it wasn't a sin. You've done all those things. You got it all. But here's the deal. What this passage tells us is nothing, no matter how good of what you've got is, now how much influence you think you have, nothing that has been made will remain. That there's gonna come a day where the heavens and earth are gonna shake. This is, this is when that new Jerusalem comes down. Remember he said the old earth and the old heavens pass away. There's a shaking that happens in that as the new heavens and the new earth come and God is with his people. He says, yet once more indicates the removal of things that, that are shaken, that is things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. So here's the good news. There are things that you can have that cannot be shaken. Here are some of them. Your faith in God cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken. Let me, let me clarify that. Your faith in God cannot be shaken to a place where you fall out of his plan. Your faith in God cannot be shaken to a place where if you are in Christ, the turmoil, the struggle, the pain of this life and the shaking of this life is something that allows you to fall out. Yeah, you'll go through some really terrible, awful, hard things down here. 
but Satan cannot snatch you from the Father's hands. You have been adopted into this family. If you've come to Zion by faith, you have entered into an unshakable kingdom, a kingdom that will remain. Your firstbornness, your soul, your salvation is secure in the one who secured it. This is the difference between Zion and Sinai. In order to get to the pinnacle of Sinai, it would have been by your good works, what you could do, and you could never reach the top of that mountain. If you touch, this is why he said, if, you, if a human or an animal touches even the base of this mountain, what happens to them? They die. This is why he invites us to, to Zion, a mountain that you can come to, that you can embrace, a mountain that doesn't just say, hey, go climb this thing, but actually a mountain that comes inside of you and says, I did the climbing and I will help you run the race up whatever mountain or valley this life sends your way. And the passage goes on. He says, therefore, okay, now here's, okay, here's what we need to do. Because of what we learned, here's what we do. Be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. And therefore, because we, he calls us to gratitude. And again, this is, the, this is the primary response. Gratitude. I mean, go back to picture the two brothers. When they're, when, when the father does what he does. You can't help but go, God, I don't deserve this. But what we know from the older brother's account is the younger brother lets the father put the ring on him. And he lets the father put the robe on him. And I, I think if we had some more details of the story, you'd probably see the older brother with a brisket sandwich in his, in his plate and some potato salad. He'd let him, he ate what the father sent. You see him on the dance floor. You see the one who has the gratitude that receives the reckless, prodigal love from the father, embraces it, and then embodies fullness of gratitude as the worst thing he could do. I mean, if you're the younger prodigal boy, the worst thing you can do is go act like the older brother. Because this is how God works. This, this is how shame affects us. We either feel none of it or we feel all of it. And some of you in this room, you're the type of people who you feel none of it. And you don't think you should feel any shame because you do everything right. And you got it right. And you, you got this Christian thing figured out and you're good to go. And you never feel shame because you're an older brother. And then some of you, and this is where shame is just as detrimental your younger brothers, and God is going, speaking through the blood of his, the shed blood of his son, going, get on the dance floor. You got a ring and a robe, man, come on. Let's go. And you're going, no, I'm too ashamed. I need to, you, you're still, you're thinking what the younger brother thought. Well, I gotta go work this off. I can be an indentured servant, and then I'll work my way to pay off the things that I've wasted. That's not how God works. And so the invitation right now is an invitation into the city. It's an invitation to the dance floor. It's an invitation to the festal gathering of angels. The invitation is to something unshakable. And again, you can try to reside in, in your good works and the things that you've done and you can lay that at the foot of the mountain and go, here's, my, here's the reason why I should be okay before you, God. But this verse ends in a really scary place. He says, 
Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Here's why. Here's why we offer this God worship, acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Here's why. Because our God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. That should strike terror and joy inside of our hearts. For some of you, it's a great news to know he's a consuming fire. And your prayer goes, God, break the, let your consuming fire melt the chains of my addiction. That's some of you, that's a prayer you need to pray during communion today. Let your consuming fire melt away the chains of my addiction. Some of you have pride through the roof. Let your consuming fire burn away my pride. And the other fearful side, because that's a good thing. If he melts and burns those things away, then you're being refined by the fire. The dross is being melted away the same way a silversmith does that. He heats it up so that the dross rises, he scrapes it off so it becomes refined and more pure. That's the refining, that's the consuming that we want. The other side is the terrifying part. That if I come to this God and I lay at his feet my good works, my good deeds, if I'm like the people in Matthew 7 who Jesus separates out and he says, you never fed me, you never gave me things. And he, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And they say, well, but we cast out many demons in your name and we prophesied and we preached great sermons and we served at all these things. Jesus, didn't we do all these things? How are you gonna tell us that we don't belong in your kingdom? Here's all the things that we did. If you're going to lay what you did as a reason for you to be able to make it into this thing, our God is a consuming fire. He's gonna burn up your good deeds and you with them. And so your only hope is to go to the one who has went through the fire for you, is to go to Jesus, go to him directly. And then while you're down here in this unshakable, crazy place, it is planet earth, what we get to do is we get to say, McDonough, somehow, someway, this is awesome. And this is what we get to be a part of as a local church. McDonough, and through its people here can actually be a city of God. Now, I know some of you are like, traffic's way too bad. It can never be a city of God. God does not ordain that. But if the spirit of God is within the people of God, and if the people of God is a place where what God wants done is done, then his kingdom is coming in your life and my life. And then if his kingdom is coming in my life, and it's coming in your life, and we get together, and we start seeing that happen more and more in our city, then our city is a predecessor, is a foretaste, is a pilot program for the new Jerusalem and how it will reign here. And my hope and my call is that the church in McDonough, the church maybe even starts here with us as the McDonough Christians, that it would rise up and well up within us and that we would begin to be able to be a people who experience his kingdom coming in us here, even in a place like this, as it is in heaven. And as you receive communion today, I pray that you ask this God to burn away the things that need to be burned away in your life, he would consume the negative thinking, that he would consume the lustful thoughts, that he would consume the chains of addiction, that he would consume all the impurities of your heart so that everything that is not of him will be melted away and he becomes a full ruler and reigner of your life. Let's pray. Father, you are enough. We trust you now in these moments to bring to fruition the things in our hearts that only you could. Pray that we're ready for how you will shake things up pray that we would not hate the shaking, but we would listen more closely, that we would know that the shaking is a sign of your speaking, that when you, Jesus, went to the cross, 
and gave your life, the earth shook. That you, Jesus, when the stone was rolled away, the earth shook. That Holy Spirit, when you came and fell in the room where those disciples were gathering and praying, the earth shook. The shaking is a sign of the movement of God. And so I ask you to shake us up where you need to shake us up so that we can hear what you're saying. In your name, Jesus. Amen.